Hi everybody, uh, this is Bridget, and welcome to a new series of The Bobcast uh, that I will be hosting, and I'm talking to faculty and staff here at Paul Smith College. Uh, today I have with me the wonderful, excellent Craig Maluski himself. Thanks, Bridget. Yeah. You want to introduce uh, yourself? Sure. Who are you? Sure. Um, my name is Craig Maluski, and I teach here at Paul Smith College. I've been here for almost 20 years now. I came here from South Dakota. Uh, we're out there, I was working as, uh, I, I worked at Dakota State University for a year, but prior to that, I worked for East Dakota Water Development District for three years as a watershed ecologist and project coordinator for watershed assessment work, look, specifically looking at the effects of land use on water quality. Um, prior, to the, prior to that, while well, I was working on my PhD at the same time, but prior to that, I was a fisheries, assistant fisheries research biologist with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources for three years. I'm originally from Michigan, and I grew up just north of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and spent a lot of time outdoors with my family and friends. Awesome. Wow. Yeah, you, like, you're very known on this campus for being just like a, a person of many hats. Like, you do a lot of different things. Feels, um, it certainly feels like that. Yeah, yes. well, you do, and, and you do them all really wonderfully. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to take your poetry class. <laughs> all right, well, let's get into it. I wrote a couple questions, but we can kind of, you know, sure. riff as we talk. Uh, why, your, your big thing is yeah, ecological restoration uh, and ecological consciousness, you know. Yes, as I move to the end of my time here at Paul Smith College, I'll only be, I'm, uh, going into, well, I actually am in graduate retirement, and next year I'll be at one quarter time. And as I move toward the end of my time here at Paulson Smith College, I, I do reflect on on the things that still, oh, how do I describe it, um, when I wake up in the morning that still excite me. And uh, one of those is the ecological restoration, both as a profession and particularly as a program here at Paulson Smith College. And also um, this idea of a stirring of an ecological conscience, which of course is uh, a line that I borrow from San County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. And uh, so those two, I think, uh, wrap around each other nicely, this idea of restoration and having an ecological conscience that drives that as important. Nice. That's really beautiful. Um, and ecological consciousness has become sort of a, a well-used term now in the science department because of you, I think, because I hear a lot of science students using it uh, because people who have had you in class now know the term, and so we've kind of started mm -hmm. utilizing it as a way to describe that Yeah, and one feeling. thing, when I, when I, I often hear um, ecological consciousness, and I do often remind students, well, there's ecological consciousness, which is an awareness, then there's ecological conscience, which is uh, really related to a sense of right and wrong. And I hate to put, the, put it out there in such extreme terms, but uh, like a moral compass, I suppose. And uh, when I think of ecological conscience or consciousness, uh, three things come to mind. Awareness, perception, and context. Those three things together. Being aware of the world around you being able to perceive it on a very deep level, but then also being able to couch it in some kind of uh, context. And when I, when I mean, what I mean by context, and I've thought about this a lot too, 
Um, and I have this thing, I call it an imperfect model, and I'll often write this on the board. And it's an intersection of, of levels of biological organization. I draw a line on the board, it goes from something as small as a molecule on one, one end of the continuum, something as large as the cosmos, all things on the other end of the continuum, and then all levels of biological organization, so we can see how embedded we are in all of it. And the cosmos isn't something out there, we're in the cosmos. Um, so it is a nested hierarchy, we're nested on this, we're not separated from anything. And then another line that I draw through that line to intersect it is uh, history and its legacy effects. And that can include um, human history, of course, uh, and specifically in this case, land use and um, uh, policies as much as anything else and how that intersects that line. It's like, well, how does the levels of biological organization and history and legacy effects, how, how what in the world, what sense does that make to intersect those two lines? But then I draw a third line through it, and all these lines intersect at the organism. And the, set, the third line I draw through it is related to worldviews or cosmology. So on one end of the uh, cos, uh, continuum, I might put at different times kin-centric, and on the other end, anthropocentric, or on one end, group uh, uh, B, and another end, group a, refer, making reference to uh, Leopold's uh, uh, pilgrimage from group A to group B, this idea of a stirring of an ecological conscience of people in group B, um, or soil as commodity and soil as community. And so our worldviews and cosmologies as an individual, but then also as a group, are going to inf are really, really some of the big driving forces behind our cosmologies and worldviews individually and collectively. Um, but if we can see ourselves as individuals nested in all this, a part of it all, understand history and its legacy effects, understand how these worldviews intersect, then that creates the context for our ecological awareness and our ecological perception. That makes I, sense. Yeah, it does. And I've seen you draw this diagram like many mm -hmm. times in different contexts. And I also really love that usually accompanying it is you draw a little stick figure meditating <laughs> with some like dashed lines and a circle around it. Mm -hmm. And that is what you, I think you represent that intersection as, is that like ultimate like harmony for mm -hmm. lack of a better word? Yes, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I put several models up on the board. And of course the, the one I just described, I labeled that as the imperfect model, mm -hmm. it's certainly imperfect doesn't include everything, but it's a, it's a starting point to think about what it all means, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But usually when I, the, the other model I put up there is the so-called truth model, which is how a scientist is trained. You know, we look out at the world, and as a scientist, we somewhat see our, we try to objectively look at it, but we know that as information comes in, there is some bias. We don't always know what the bias is. So in science, we have things like, um, literature review, research design, techniques and skills, and then creative, uh, critical and creative thinking. And all those go into the scientific process, scientific inquiry. So that's one way of knowing. And what you were just describing, the little stick figure sitting there meditating with these circles around it, I describe that, and I'm only borrowing this. This isn't something I made up. I describe that as other ways of perceiving and knowing. So we have the scientific way but then there's other ways, and that could just be sitting by the lake. 
um, sitting alongside some beaver ponds or a stream or sitting in the woods. Um, this place where the narrow bounds of self fall away and suddenly it, a, a sudden recognition that I am indeed a part of all this and it's something that's very challenging perhaps to even put into words. That's where poetry comes in. And that's how that works. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh. Well, now that I'm thinking about, like, the outside, um, how did you get here? And, like, what, what makes you love the Adirondacks? Uh, we're in a study room right now, and it's, a, you know, it's a view mm -hmm. of the lake. You can see the lower St. Regis from here. Um, yeah, what do you love about uh, well, this, Dax? Other than saying everything, if I were just looking out the window here, for example, the fact that the campus sits on the water, that is huge. Um, Big agree on that one. Water, a body of water makes all the difference in the world. And of course, looking across the lake, it's, it's foggy out there right now and cloudy, but being able to see, look across the lake and see lower St. Regis, Regis Mountain, um, and just looking out there knowing that this lake serves as an educational environment for fisheries techniques and ecological restoration, and many other courses, limnology, etc. And then looking over at St. Regis Mountain and uh, knowing that on the north side, the north slope, we have a network of streams set up where uh, uh, stream ecology and several other courses go up there, but a network of reaches that on an annual basis, get sampled for fishes and vertebrates and physical habitat, and that's just and that's just uh, a few examples. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I can look out there right now and see what is that? It's a bird flying. I'm not sure. Looks like an immature bald eagle flying by right now. No way. Yep, it is. Oh my gosh! So there How you cool is that? So there you have it. Oh um, my so god! So there's so much here. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, huh? That's so cool. <laughs> um, and, the, and the fact that this college oh my gosh. sits in the northern Adirondacks, what do you see? The loons. Oh, they were going They're right by the there. dock. Yes. Yeah. Yep, I can actually hear them, even though all the windows they're are closed. Very, very nervous. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, Bird interlude. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are in the northern Adirondacks, and the Adirondacks is part of the uh, Champlain Adirondack Biosphere Reserve. Um, so it's that in itself suggest that on a global scale it's unique and how many um, mountains can you go into where you have an abundance of lakes not very most most mountains um, have an abundance of streams and rivers which the Adirondack does but uh, the mountains or I'm sorry the the lakes the wetlands the bogs it's just an incredible mixture of different ecosystem types yeah everywhere you go here there is mm -hmm. A, at least a body of water. And there's everywhere, driving on the road, walking around in the woods, like you will find streams and ponds and lakes and bogs and marshes and wetlands just about everywhere. Yes. Yeah, yes. it's really incredible, the biodiversity out here. And just the, the way the land exists as it is, is just incredible up here. I think that's also why I love it. So I agree with everything you just said. That there's a lot of the stuff that I say when I when someone's like, "Why? Why do you like it up here?" Like, because it's beautiful and it's a representation of life. And of course, it does have like uh, most all places. It has its uh, history. Yes. Um, with its um, 
interesting history with all its sorrows and uh, such. Yeah, I mean, just this, the campus has been through so much, so much. It's got so much, you know, within the land. It's incredible. I mean, like when we go out and we take soil samples with you, you know, I actually, I still have a picture somewhere of you holding up a, a bit of the soil horizon. Mm -hmm. um, and Craig, you have this, it's like half of a PVC pipe and oh, yeah. you can put the like soil sample in it so you can see like the gradation, you know, wherever you got your soil from. Um, and I just like, I always think it's so, it's so neat to me. I, I love, I love I love dirt. <laughs> I love soil. I know uh, dirt and soil are like horrendously different in the science world, but I just really love the word dirt. It's fun getting <laughs> dirty. Yeah. Um, when someone says I've soiled myself, that's something different. Yeah. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, you talk to a soil scientist, and they don't like the word dirt. No, they don't. Um, I know. Soil is, dirt is dead. And soil is just teeming with life yeah that's true that's true yeah soil has so much life in it it's incredible uh and like just learning about i i chose to study methylmercury for wetlands mm -hmm. and just like reading about that was crazy just the fact that one tiny cycle amidst so many others is intertwined with it all and i was like this is incredible um and now that I'm sort of thinking of where you're, where you got all of your, your beliefs, your philosophies from, you know, um, from your own life experiences and all that, you know, you mentioned Aldo Leopold before we started recording. I mentioned Alan Watts. Uh, so maybe talk about some of your like inspirations, your mentors, people that sure mean um, something to you, got you where you are. I can count just in an ecological consciousness or awareness. Um, of course, when I was a, a when I was a child, I wasn't thinking in those terms. But we certainly spent a heck of a lot of time outdoors. I um, you know the typical things that hear people say they experienced: camping, hunting, fishing, canoeing, hiking, backpacking, all that stuff. But that that does nothing to say what those experiences to a person when you're out there. Um, your a person's awareness is uh, really naturally cultivated if you spend a lot of time in the, out, time in the outdoors. How can it not be? If, if, it's, if also you begin to love it, you begin to see it more. And um, so I really didn't think about it too much until I was in my teens and all my happy places to go to, I call them my sacred places, uh, began to be developed. Um, condominiums, suburban sprawl. We lived out in the country, and uh, these places that I love to go to were suddenly being developed. Um, no trespassing signs were going up, and suddenly it's it's strange. I could drive down miles and miles of road, but um, I suddenly felt caged. And uh, one of the and so that 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 was uh, something to reflect on and think about. What is this human species that seems to be um, bursting at the seams at times? Of course, this was uh, in the late 70s, um, and I started college in 1980, fall of 1980. But 
there was a, I know there was one other individual in high school. There was an individual in high school, Mr. Lyons. He taught ecology, and I took that course. And he was always taking us out in the field, always, whether it was bogs, uh, wetlands, uh, woodlands, it, and he was just like a walking naturalist. And I found that very inspirational. It's like, wow, here's this old guy. He can walk out there without knows anything, and and just um, everywhere he looked, he could turn it into a lesson. It was beautiful. Um, and then when I went to Grand Rapids Community College, um, I had I had very little tolerance for sitting in an uh, economics class and hearing about trickle-down economics. Um, I thought the appropriate word was certainly trickle-down. But I would often skip that class. And if I wasn't going to one of my favorite rivers to sit and just watch the water flow by, I'd, I'd hide out in the corner of the library. And I discovered um, two authors, um, Sigurd Olson and Aldo Leopold. And I read a Sand County Omnic, I don't know, it was 18 or 19, somewhere in there. And a lot of that went over my head because I didn't have the experience to relate it to. Um, the other, uh, Sigurd Olson was the other author, and I gravitated to his work big time because it seemed like there was a real, um, he imbued a lot of his essays with a, a kind of spiritual connection to land. And both those individuals made me realize that I was not alone in a world where all my sacred places were being lost, but also that they could put it into words. And that's what I found amazing. I could identify with the words, the way they wrote, and even though I did not write it, it was like putting into words what I was feeling. Nice. So that was very important. Of course, as time goes on, um, I kept rereading those works. Uh, many other people inspired me. But if I were to make the big leap today and think about... Um, people who inspire me. I would say it's as much the uh, mystics and mystical traditions that, that these individuals are associated with. And it doesn't matter um, if it's uh, what mystical or religious tradition it is. Buddhism, Christianity, Taoism, Hinduism, um, uh, Judaism. It, it, it almost doesn't matter because... Uh, I like understanding what, to me, mysticism, there's a, a parallel there with a deeper connection to land. Um, that's how I understand it anyways. So I can't, right now, I, I, I couldn't even point out one that jumps out in my mind. Uh, most certainly, you mentioned Alan Watts earlier, and I just like him, you know, he's he certainly brought... Um, Buddhism was one of those instrumental in bringing Buddhism to the United States, or at least couching it in terms that uh, um, your average American could understand. Um, and I still like listening to him today. One of my favorite videos, it was captured, there's very few videos of him, um, was Conversation with Myself. And he provides right at the end there a little suggestion on on how we might be able to live in some kind of peace and harmony with the world. Yeah. You got me interested in Alan Watts. And you sh I remember you showed that video in uh, Glenn's class when you came in. Uh, 
and it was Craig Maluski week. And we were all like so excited about it. We were like, oh my God, Craig's going to talk about cool stuff. Yeah. Um, but I remember watching that video and um, I had I had looked up Alan Watts because you had mentioned him uh, at an earlier time to me. Uh, and so I looked him up and I watched a couple and I found a few things, you know, that he had done. Um, but I hadn't seen conversation with myself. And then when we watched it in class, I was like, whoa, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was, a, that was a, he's a really interesting person. Uh, he was a really human being. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, humans are flawed and every, I, I can't mm. think of anyone who doesn't have certain flaws or some, or some aspect of, oh, yeah. of them that, uh, rubs people wrong, you know, and I'm, I'm okay with that because I know I'm perfectly flawed. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's humans for you. You know, there's we're all flawed. That's just like the nature of humans, I guess. Uh, this is sort of related, but I was kind of thinking of what you just said about like flawed flaws, but it's a little less flawed and more so like. Um, in terms of uh, natural like evolution of things because we saw balloons earlier and I was thinking about how they as birds are like not meant for land. They, they swim and they fly and that's kind of it. Um, and they get like stuck on land sometimes. I'm sure you know all of this. Uh, but I was just kind of like thinking about it and how they're just like built for water and not for walking on land. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just interesting to think about like a bird that mainly swims, kind of like a penguin. Mm -hmm. But like, like loons can also fly. They're very strong flyers. I don't know. It's just very interesting how you can have a bird like that and then you can also have a bird like, you know, a robin just as an example, you know? It's just incredible how you can have such a wide array of those things in different uh, niches. Yeah, biological diversity is amazing. It's incredible. The, the, the diversification for the different types of environments is just astounding. It really is. Um, and even looking in the stream that might have 12 different species of minnows, um, once you understand the life history of each of those well, minnows, you cannot just look at them and say minnows anymore. Yeah. Uh, Each one has its own special requirements. Actually, my roommate and I went out um, to one of the zones you took us to for wetlands. It's that lovely peat area by that little pond. Um, and we were looking in the little pools and we saw a decapod and it was really neat. Mm -hmm. So uh, it just goes to show you that life is quite literally everywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. And you can find just like such amazing things if you just like aren't worried about getting your knees a little bit wet. <laughs> yeah. uh, so here's, here's me encouraging you to, uh, even though it's rainy and gloomy, to go out somewhere and, you know, look at the ground for a little while. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um. You know, just taking a couple steps back, 
Yeah. When I use the word plod, I, it also, it's not, every time it comes out of my mouth, it feels very strong. And I often see, it often jumps out at me as a, as a word that's not the best word to use. But the idea is that as human beings, and as we grow from uh, young age to um, young adults, and as we move through adulthood towards middle age and so forth, we start to develop a, a personal narrative, a story, a story that has beliefs, that, that starts to, a story that is a, a composition or is comprised of beliefs, attitudes, behaviors, and I, I, I reflect upon that. And the story, for example, that I would carry through my head is that the world is turning into uh, chaos is becoming a wreck because I'm losing all these sacred places around me. And what may have stirred me to go on to become a biologist and then a teacher, um, sometimes I, I think that those things that got me here don't always serve me well anymore. And because it was just, a, it is just a story. I can identify with all those things, but it's really not me. Or picking up mm -hmm. on, on what it is, who am I? You know, and I, I found there was a point in time where I had this save the world mentality, and it was turned out to be one of the worst places to ever be. Save the world. I'm going to save the world. Realizing what a joke that was. Um, and one way to couch that is when I finished my master's at South Dakota State University and, and then shortly thereafter became an assistant fisheries research biologist studying the, the uh, evaluating factors that were limiting game fish in southern Minnesota streams and understanding that uh, there was hardly any tall grass prairie left. Many, if not most, of the wetlands had been drained. Many of the, the with subsurface tiling, a lot of the streams had been ditched straightened and ditched, which served as receptors for a lot of the subsurface tiling. And it's like, really? Do we really have to go any further than a map of the landscape to effectively say what's influencing these streams? And I had the, I, ha, I was super naive, thinking that as long as we had good scientific data, um, we could easily make changes. Yeah. So naive. And I realized a couple of different things. One, the, the dollars going into a lot of ecological studies, scientific research related to um, our biodiversity, our fisheries and wildlife resources is pretty small compared to the funding that's going into other types of research for farming, et cetera. And I don't wanna, I'm not here to bash farming at all, not at all, but um, just realizing that there was, there was that type of tension there. Um, one thing I did not have as part of my education up to that point is a background, any kind of background, really, in the humanities. Very, very little. And I think that's an important about, part about what I do here. And realizing that the arts and the humanities, um, and the, especially environmental humanities, which ask of us to look at the narratives that hold things in place as they are, 
challenging those narratives or at least understanding them and creating bridge building narratives to affect some positive changes in the world. And if that is one of the things that drives me here. Um, how to cultivate, again, a type of awareness, perception, and context to the humanities that makes us understand better what we're dealing with and perhaps what we're dealing with as individuals inside and then being able to better deal with the situations outside us. Um, I found myself in a save the world mentality, which was a total disaster. I became depressed, very depressed and not in a very good place. And finally came to the realization with help from friends and such that um, there's a better way to, to deal with this. It's like, stop, let go of that narrative as savior of the world. And it was so, it was so silly. It's like, that, that's such an ego trip. It, that, it was, it's totally silly. That's the worst way to try and make any changes in the world is, is yeah. get on some kind of ego trip. And as I moved, as I moved away from that idea and realized that the world is as it is right now, Understanding it is fine, but uh, uh, turning it into one big grievance, um, letting it consume me through anger and bitterness was not a good way. And making that transition from what I would call an ego-driven life or, or way of working to more of a, I know some people might find this a little bit odd, but I would say spiritually based approach to it all. Um, understanding that um, <clears throat> I can't cling too tightly to my expectations um, and I cannot engage in drama and most of it I call the drama of make-believe because often so much of it is up in our heads I create this story inside that's crummy so I'm gonna make the outside world seem crummy too and uh, it's not sticking your head in the sand. It was not, for me, it wasn't sticking my head in the sand. It was like, okay, this is, this is how it is. What's the best way to move forward? And rather than things like anger, bitterness, resentment, that served no good purpose, um, turns people off. But what's the opposite of that? Uh, kindness, compassion, and empathy. And that's where a person, I think, can be more effective including yeah. in education, including in um, helping people connect with the world around us. Seeing ourselves in other people's eyes, seeing ourselves in the land, understanding that we're all just one. And we need to make this a big we effort. Mm -hmm. And uh, have a positive attitude, despite some of the, some of the um, distresses in the world. You know, if I had to place a word, one word, on how I feel about the world, um, I, I thought about that. It's like, is it, is it sadness? Kind of. Is it sorrow? Kind of. And then I settled on a word. It's like, why do I do what I do? It's kind of a yearning. Yearning. A yearning. A longing for something that, that's not there or present 
or something that is there and present, but I see it maybe becoming lost. And I realize only recently that this may have been one of the reasons for why I do what I do. Um, seeing all those losses of my sacred places while I was growing up, um, working in agencies where our efforts often were countered by even stronger efforts to do the opposite, like draining wetlands in eastern South Dakota. And it's like, where do, where do you even start with that? Um, and a yearning for a thing that's being lost. Now, you often think that, that that's also part of the stirring of an ecological conscience. When it's lost, it's hard to get it back. And I don't know, I'm still thinking it through. I think a lot of people work out of a yearning for something that doesn't exist. Yeah. Or a yearning for something that could be better than what currently exists. Just that longing for connection to something greater than oneself. Yeah. And in yeah. as an individual, but also in the in the community sense. I completely agree with that. I really do. Yearning. That's that's I really I like get that. Like I feel that. I've definitely felt that. I do feel that mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Um you kind of got me thinking about uh, the term climate anxiety. I'm sure you've heard that now, which is kind of like the the generic internet term for the save the world, I have to be the savior mentality we're talking about. That's like the today word yeah. for that There's today term. There's so many words get paired together. And yeah. I, I wonder to what end, toward what end. Um, is it too exemplify a problem or, or, or um, let's see what's the word I'm looking for I can't think of it right now when I when I think about climate I'll just I'll just think of climate change yeah um, rather than just making it anxious like climate anxiety anxiety of course person that's anxious is someone that's worried about the future and sure we're worried about the future but um, and that's an it's, it's kind of our duty I suppose but when I hear climate anxiety and I don't have a definite I don't know what the definition of that is but I often think of this uh, there's a a, some kind of like futility syndrome I can't remember the exact phrase either but if an individual is being bombarded continually with how rotten things are um, after a while a person's going to put their head in the sand just I I don't want to see this or throw their arms up what am I supposed to do um, and I, I think that then can lead to a type of anger and bitterness. No one said it's easy, and it's not easy for me. I mean, every day I have a practice that tells me moving the world with a positive attitude it doesn't always work. Um, oh yeah, that yeah, I. It doesn't always work, but it's good to like know it's there and have it. Yes. So have the process. So when I think that. of this, just very briefly, when I think of climate change, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, uh, what can we do about it? And this is where I come right back to, say, ecological restoration or the, an ecological conscience. Ecological mm-hmm. restoration in the United Nations adopted a resolution and passed a, a decade, created a resolution to, let's see, 
decade of ecosystem restoration. They established the decade 2021 to 2030 as a decade of ecosystem restoration to deal with climate change, but also to deal with poverty, loss of biodiversity, um, uh, social issues, cultural issues. And so ecosystem restoration or ecological restoration is not just about the ecology. It also, and, and it's not just an ecological conscience that's driving that. It's also a social conscience that's driving ecological or ecosystem restoration. And what's one of the best ways to address climate change? Ecological restoration. It's a, it's a practice. Climate is going to change the uh, temperature regimes and moisture regimes. So, so plants are going to either expand or contract along with the, the fauna. But what's, what's critical here is that restoring vegetation, which is such a big part of ecological restoration, is one way to counter the effects of climate change. It's an effective, hands-on way. It, it can be an effective, hands-on way to, to do that. And, and it's not just about the ecology. It's also about um, uh, social issues as well, of course. We all know that. We know environmental and social issues are not inseparable. Oh, certainly. They go hand in hand. They never have been separated, I feel. I think they've always kind of been together, whether we want them to be or not. Yeah. And so that ecological conscience, the sense of right or wrong, is often based on ecological awareness, mm -hmm. perception, and context. And if we don't teach that or try to convey that, and also be humble enough in our effort, to be humble in our efforts, I'll say that one more time, be humble in our efforts, I don't know if it's gonna go very far. Um, if I'm in a truck driving with a rancher out in western South Dakota and he's pointing out all these interesting things that he's doing restoring the land because he wants to, that's, that's amazing. I'm learning right there. Sitting in that truck, I'm learning about other individuals who are just as concerned about the landscape as, as a, uh, someone who's educated is, maybe even more so. That's where the humility comes in. Right. Um, Humility. Humility and futility are like the two words that are <laughs> bouncing around in my head now. I feel like like futile was a really good word to use, but I want to continue on the positive note, mm -hmm. uh, and humility is definitely the positive side of that. Uh, being humble in what you do is definitely like a good kind of ground moral. Yeah, it's being... It's being teachable and also knowing that you just don't know it all. Oh, yeah. And, and also, like, often couple with humility, this idea of gratitude. And yeah. Just being grateful. Grateful. You know, and also reverence, reverence for all of life. Yeah. And uh, how, how do you cultivate that uh, out of anything but uh, compassion, kindness, and empathy? Yeah. Anger and resentment is going to work. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. I'll. Also say that like connecting connection with each other and the earth. I'm you definitely talked a lot about that yourself, um, but just seeing eye to eye with each other, with the land, mm -hmm. with a lot of things, all things. Being able to have civil discussions. Yeah. And know that we're not always going to agree. Mm -hmm. um, and that is that's. that's and sometimes. Going out there. into the woods and putting your ear on a tree for a second. Exactly, yeah. Which is extremely helpful. It it does a lot. 
if you if you're really in a meditative moment of peace and silence, just kind of like lean over on a tree. Trust me. <laughs> That's kind of one of those things that you just kind of have to do to yeah. like understand it. It's kind of like getting out of stuff, getting out of oneself for a little while. Yeah, it is. Yeah. For a moment, you kind of just don't feel like you're there, in a really good way. I don't know how to explain it. I tend to think what happened is at that moment the ego has temporarily dissolved. Yeah. You know, the, all the, there's nowhere to be, nothing you need to do, no one you need to impress. Um, you know, all the time the world has plans for you, it's telling you what you should do, and here's a moment of absolute freedom where, where everything that I identify with that I think is me is gone. And I am, I simply am. I am. I am. I am that I am. Yeah. Glenn would like that one. <laughs> Are there any last, you know, tidbits of wisdom or, oh. you know, Looney Tunes bits that oh. you... <laughs> when I was thinking about um, our what our conversation was going to be like today, of course, I didn't know exactly where it was going to go. Um, and because I am teaching the stirring of an ecological conscience this semester... And I often do think of uh, the land ethic, uh, a land ethic, the land ethic that Leopold uh, wrote in the San County Almanac. A thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It's wrong when it tends otherwise. And what was so clear about that part, too, is he said in a land, an ethic is never written in stone and evolves in the mind of a thinking community. And that part, I think, often gets lost. Uh, he wasn't, as he said it himself, it wasn't writ written in stone. And, and he was clearly making a biblical reference there. Um, but I was thinking about, about that. And it's like, what, what does, a, what, what, what is part of that ethic? What's underneath that ethic? And he always talked about the, uh, the, the love of, of life and such as well. And... <laughs> I scribbled something down as I was thinking about that hmm. uh, underneath the land ethic this phrase a thing is right when it tends to preserve or restore kindness, compassion, empathy it is wrong when it cultivates anger and resentment and bitterness hmm. there's just so much of that yeah. matter in the world it, it's, it's time to look at the world through, set aside the, the news, set aside social media. I'm not going to set aside my social media. Okay, don't set aside your social media. Um, I, I know anyone I've heard who's, who has set it aside for a while uh, does experience more serenity and contentment in their life. So try that as an experiment if you disagree with me. Um, and, and it has nothing to do with sticking your head in the sand and ignoring the social and ecological issues. In fact, it would make a person more effective in approaching those issues. Yeah, just kind of like limiting your social media use, I think, is really helpful mm -hmm. in general. And then uh, with that, because we are such a, like, internet, we're at mm -hmm. an internet time, you know, that's yeah, just like yeah. kind of where we are socially. Um making your feed of content like 
show you things you genuinely care about because you can do that. The algorithm is listening to you. You know, you're the one who's <laughs> who's choosing that. And that can apply to like, you know, not technology. That applies to life. You yeah. Yeah. the the algorithm of life. I like um, that. I like that. You're applying Change that it, right? that humbleness yeah. that we were discussing yeah. to change it to the best of your ability and so, change his nature. So interesting you say that. I'm, you know, I'm not a social media person, <laughs> but I do know that uh, when I listen to individuals or any, any part of, say, YouTube or, or sites, I tend to go to those that have a happy or joyous yeah, and I agree. I gravitate towards people who are like a lot more positive in their content making yeah. and like welcome a wide audience and have a similar philosophy or moral code to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've realized I've like honed that in over time, yeah. uh, not just in terms of social media, but in general in yeah. my life. And I suppose you could use that to counter, you know, the, the positive to counter the negative. Yeah. You know, and not certainly. And, and, and it, it, this is this is what I think could be beautiful about it is, is that uh, um, peacemaking and healing. No matter where you go or what the discussions are about, um, how how can one enter into the discussion with the notion of being a peacemaker or, or a healer? Sometimes maybe it means saying nothing. I don't know. Yeah, sometimes it does mean saying nothing. It, in in my opinion, I think I think it's different for everybody. Yes. You know, that's a very like unique thing because we all experience everything a little bit differently. Yes. So. Um, we all have different triggers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Everything. Everyone exists just a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Everything exists just a little bit differently. Even you know. The tiniest zooplankton, each one is going to vary from another. They may have similar behaviors, but they'll all have a little quirk, even though they're super tiny and microscopic. Yeah. You know? Makes life beautiful. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like you know, when you were a kid and you'd catch snowflakes, and you'd be like, look, they're all different. Awe and wonder. Awe and wonder. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Having, oh. Perfect timing. Uh, one of the little lady beetles just landed on the color, other side. Color of your shirt. <laughs> you have a little friend. I'll, He's, I'll take him for a ride. Yeah. <laughs> we'll go for a little adventure so with you. Oh. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me, Craig. I had a great time. It's my um, pleasure, Bridget. Yeah, I'm really glad you get to be, you know, the first installment in this. It's really cool. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye, everybody.